So hello and welcome. My name is Steve Nobel and today I'm speaking with Robert Fritz on The Path of Least Resistance. Robert is an accomplished composer, filmmaker and writer and he's been an organisational consultant for some of the largest companies in the world. Robert is the author of a number of books, including The Path of Least Resistance, which details how a person can utilise their creative process and the knowledge of structure to create their life according to their highest aspirations and deepest goals. One of his more recent books, uh, which I'll be certainly buying after this interview, Robert's been telling me about it, is called Your Life is Art, so do check that out as well. Now, Robert lives in southern Vermont with his wife and colleague, Rosalind, and if you want to check him out some more, his personal website is robertfritz.com. Dot com. So, Robert, uh, hello. Um, Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. How are you doing? Yeah, I, I, I hear that uh, Vermont is very cold over there, but cold but beautiful. So uh, thanks for taking the time anyway to chat with me. Oh, my pleasure. So, Robert, you know, I, I came across this book, I don't know, several years ago, and it's really been on my bookshelf ever since, The Path of Least Resistance. And um, I've kind of thumbed it through and marked it and highlighted it. How did you come to write such a book? It's quite an unusual book in terms of self-help, isn't it? Yeah, in, in a funny way, it's not a self-help book, even though it is sold as a self-help book. Um, I think the uh, combination of ingredients was that um, I began in self-help in the sense that I, I subscribe to all the positive thinking things and programming the subconscious and all of that stuff. And um, I put together a course in Boston and we had several people take it. And what I found is that at first um, everybody could accomplish their goals fairly easily. But when I checked back with them, let's say six months, a year later, many of the people had had what we could call reversals. In other words, they were building their lives and suddenly there was something that happened and they were no longer building their lives. And I had to understand what was the context of that? What was the, what was the cause of that? And um, through, you know, a few years of, I, I, it's not exactly research, it's more like laboratory work, right. you know, really studying what, what was going on. I discovered um, what we've come to call macrostructural patterns. And that is the longer range patterns in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And there are two basic patterns. Uh, in one pattern, you set out for what you want, you do what it takes, you get the result, and that becomes a platform for future development. And that's a good pattern. Uh, but the other pattern um, is you set out for whatever it is, um, you, t you do what it takes, you get it. But then there are predictable reversals. When I say predictable, I mean that if you back up and see the pattern, you can see that in every case, almost like a dance step, there were specific kinds of things that happened, different content in the, in the steps, but exactly the same form of the steps. And the person ended up exactly where they were. And so it made me rethink the whole notion of what's going on. And having been a composer, uh, I have a bachelor's and master's in composition from Boston Conservatory um, and, and worked as a musician uh, in the music business. Uh, and that gives you a very special notion of structure and the relationship of parts to the whole. And so I started looking at people's lives from a structural point of view, almost like uh, doing um, form and analysis of a sonata yeah. and discovered that there were certain causes, certain uh, elements within one structure that was, was different than, like the oscillating structure was different from the advancing structure, the one where that succeeds. Um, and I rejected the whole notion of 
programming the subconscious and all of that stuff, because all of that can get you to the point of having goals and accomplishing those goals temporarily. But if you're in a structure that oscillates, it almost exacerbates the magnitude of the oscillation. You right. know, big success is going to be followed by a big downfall. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, <laughs> which yes. Is, which is not nice. Yeah. And the other th- I think the other thing to note is that it wasn't personal. In mm. other words, if I took you out, and let's say you had an oscillating structure, I took you out and I put somebody else in that very same structure, that person would have exactly the same examples. Right. That it, was, um, it was like gravity. It was like principles of physics. You talk a lot about this kind of like tension and oscillation. We'll come to that. But, you know, you talk about this great metaphor of like life as a kind of path or a, or a river. And, there's, and you talk about the kind of structure in that way. And you, your book starts off with these kind of insights into, you know, structure and energy. That One of the first ones was energy moves where it's easiest to go. It sounds pretty obvious, really. You know, don't we all do that? Yes. And that's all energy can do, by the way. And it's not exactly... A metaphor, it's more of an illustration of the principle, the, the physics principle, that yeah. energy moves where it's easiest for it to go. And uh, just to, to name the other two insights that were helpful in that, it's the underlying structure that determines where it goes. So it's the riverbed that determines where the water goes. But if we change the riverbed, the water goes in a different direction or changes. What and the third... Of- what are the kind of structures in our lives that actually, you know, determine that kind of riverbed then? Um, let me name the third structure, yeah. the third principle, and then, and then I'll name that. Okay. Um, the third one is that we can change the underlying structure, like we can change a riverbed. Cool. And that's the important one, because if we couldn't change the underlying structure, it, it, it's sort of like we would be doomed to our fate. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and in fact... Hence no reason to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> Just good <laughs> luck to, to us all. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's the most uh, hopeful principle, is that we can change the underlying structure. The only thing is, most people try to cre- create change without understanding that you need to change the underlying structure. Yeah. And so the change effort is rejected like the body rejects an implanted organ. No, but a change of underlying structure will definitely change, uh, lead to a change of behavior um, automatically by the way, because it's, a, it's exactly the same principle of the path of least resistance. So um, the oscillating patterns are caused by a combination of ingredients. Uh, one is we call it dynamic urge, which is basically levels of desire. Levels of desire range from appetites which and impulses which um, demand quick uh, gratification. You know, this is why McDonald's is so successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. And they know it, too, because they did an ad in America. It was just outrageous. They did an ad in America saying that uh, it uh, satisfies your pleasure center. And there was an, one ad that you can't resist. And they know what they're doing is they're really selling to the impulse of the appetite, which demands quick gratification. And yeah. you're not thinking long term. You're thinking short term. Yeah. If we move that frame to um, over uh, to something higher, it would become true aspirations and your deepest values. You know what matters to you, what you want to build, what you want to create. Yeah. And um, in the creative process, especially as applied to our lives, you know, using the creative process to build our life, the as- we want to organize our life around aspirations and values yeah. versus impulses and, and appetites. 
Okay. And, you know, and if that's not focused, it can, it can get very unfocused into sort of vague hopes and desires. You know, someday you're going to go write the great novel or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> travel to Tahiti and paint or whatever. And you find never that, uh, that we can have a conflict of values, like my wife values uh, me going out and making a load of money, where I value, you know, just um, being more creative. Could that happen? Sure. And um, the... Uh, that becomes then uh, a point where you have to sort out what's more important and what's less important. So you create hierarchy. You, you know, it's not to say you don't have the appetite that you want the immediate gratification. Yeah. It is to say, does that choice actually support your longer term choices? So you you actually have to. The thing about values anyway is values are always in conflict with competing values. That's what a value is, by the way. A value is not just simply that you favor something. Uh, how, do you, you know, how do you know your values? Let's say you had the value of love, uh, kindness on the one hand, and truth on the other. Yeah. And your sister just uh, did a concert, and she can't carry a tune in a basket. Right. And if kindness were the higher value, you'd say, gee, sis, you were great. And if truth were the higher value, you'd say, sis, don't give up your day job. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, we're always um, the nature of values is that we create hierarchy of what's more important and what's less important. And then that helps us organize our lives around what's more important. Um, and we support that by not doing the less important ones yeah, yeah, yeah. or by making them sub uh, dominant. Do you think, um, Robert, that I mean, it seems to me that, you know, I've been in workshops where, um, you know, people start talking about values. And if somebody's running on impulses and appetites and has got no sense of their values, is it really a question of, you know, them just stopping in their tracks and go, you know, what is important? Have you ever thought about it? Well, it's better to understand that if they're in that frame, to them, there is no sense of future. Okay. So it's better to get out of that frame. We see this a lot with young people, by the way. And uh, my work's been done in a lot of being used in a lot of school systems. And one of the principles is to really help uh, the students move from a short term focus to a longer term focus, because when they do that, then they're motivated to do their homework. Then they're motivated to take the secondary kinds of actions that they don't like in support of a primary choice, which they do want. Does so, that always involve some maybe some short term sacrifice Like I've got to work hard for the next three years and then I'll get what I want type of thing or not well, always? It's not, it's not a trade off. It's not exactly a sacrifice. It's more of a strategic choice. Okay. <clears throat> Let's say I have two um, goals. One is or two wants. One is I want to be a good pianist. And the other was I, I don't want to spend my time practicing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So now I've got two things I want. Which one's more important? So if being um, a good pianist is more important, then I will choose to practice, even though I don't like it particularly. Yeah. It's not a trade-off. It is a st strategic secondary choice in support of a primary choice. And it doesn't feel like a trade-off either. It's not a sacrifice. It is, I don't have to do this thing, but I'm actually doing it because it supports something more important that, that's more important to me. That's the key to discipline. I mean, you talk in your book a lot about um, tension, which is um, kind of really interesting. You know, the idea that, you know, there could be tension between, for example, uh, where you are and where you want to be. And that's a tension. You know, I guess the bigger the, the bigger the kind of step, the greater the tension, right? Yeah, but we're not talking about psychological tension. We're not talking about pressure. We're not talking about anxiety. 
Mm. We're talking about structure. It's the same as stretching a bow as an archer and aiming the arrow at the target with adequate tension. You can get the arrow to the target with inadequate tension. You can't. And what causes the tension is the contrast between, in this case, the desired state and the actual state. You know, the vision of what you want and where you are now in relationship to that vision. And this is part of the part and parcel of the creative process. So a painter standing in front of a canvas, uh, he or she has a vision of the uh, painting. Um, they have the current state of the painting, and they keep taking actions to bring the current state up to the degree of the vision. And once that has been accomplished, they sign the painting, which basically says this painting matches my vision. I think you mentioned in the book the danger of, you know, uh, lowering the vision or, low, you, see, you know, I think you mentioned that, don't you? Maybe for fear of disappointment or failure. I guess it's quite common. We have a goal yeah, of vision. Actually, yeah, actually, a, a somewhat famous quote of mine, according to the Internet, is <laughs> you cannot invest your life spirit in a compromise. Yeah. And the question is, how do we organize our lives? And this is not a utopian kind of notion. It's more of this. Um, if we stack the cards in our favor, we're more likely to succeed. And in the self-help world, so many people think that has to do with mental attitude, and it actually doesn't. And the point, the, the point I want to make, it's, it's uh, so much not about belief system, is that people have mastered the creative process and have been of all kinds of beliefs. The, the creative process is philosophically neutral. It doesn't mean, you know, that... I am or you are or other people aren't, you know, I'm not, I'm not philosophically neutral, but the creative process is the same way driving a car is. So mostly people have learned that they have to manage their beliefs and that if they, if they believe the right things, good things will happen. If you back up and see the oscillating patterns, what you can see is they can make it to the first number of goals, but then there'll be a reversal and bring them back into that structure because you can't fool mother structure. So um, I, just to say about the what causes, uh, your original question was, what causes the oscillation? Yeah. So there are things we want. Um, reality itself is the way it is. It's not up for grabs. You know, it's not like yeah. my truth and your truth. You know, uh, it, in fact, it is the way it is, and you either recognize it or you don't. And the third element in an oscillating pattern are the various concepts people have. Now, when I say that, people in the self-help business think I'm talking about limiting beliefs, but I'm not. I'm talking about all beliefs. So here's how, here's how the transition happens. Um, it's not adopting a different belief system for the one you have. It's actually having beliefs and concepts not be part of the creative process. We're left with two versus three elements. We're left with what you want, and we're left with what's going on in reality. Now, if, um, if we, people tend to distort reality through the lens of their beliefs or their concepts, hmm. and they don't even know they're doing that. So it's an acquired taste, actually, reality. But once you acquire it, 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 you can't give it up either. Right, right. <laughs> are you talking so, about uh, reality as a kind of feedback, telling you exactly where you're at? Is, is that what you mean? It's more than feedback. It is the platform that you're creating, uh, on which you're creating. You know, in other words, I can conceive of the most wonderful music, but unless I can have it played, 
it doesn't actually really exist except right. in my mind. Right, got it, yeah. So they're, they're in the creative process, it's a real sense of artifact. By the way, unlike philosophy, philosophy, you never have to prove anything. <laughs> okay, yeah, I get that too. Right? But in the creative process, you make a painting, somebody will say the nose is too big or I didn't like the film or that music, you know, or they like it. In other words, there's something there in reality. Yeah. And we live in our lives exist in reality. And if we're to be able to use the creative process, which, by the way, is the most successful process for accomplishment in history, creative process to create all of the arts, science, technology, um, and yet we don't learn it in school. But if we use that uh, process in relationship to our lives, we suddenly have access to the most powerful and uh, powerful tool for accomplishing building the lives we want. Let me let me ask you something, Robert, on this one. Like I, I've, I've written some books myself, and I know the kind of creative process from a... I've got an idea, I think about it, I get excited, I approach a, a, a publisher, they say, oh yeah, or, or no, and then I try again, and eventually I get a contract, and I've got to write the book. And as I'm writing it, I, I might you know, do the process and go through it thinking, oh, is this rubbish? You know, Can I really hand this in? That is, a, for me, a kind of creative process of almost like taking a step forward, deleting it, it going backwards. Eventually I hand the book in, yeah. and then when I read it, I might <clears throat> be kind of mildly surprised or disappointed. I mean, in terms of that, whether it's a painting or whatever it is, is, is that the kind of thing that happens? Even, yes, there's reality. We, we play the music, and maybe when we, we, we have it played for us, we might be astounded or not so astounded. So what happens to a creator in that process if they listen to it? Now, some people might give up, go, oh, that book was rubbish. I'm never going to do it again type of thing. Well, for, yeah, first of all, there's no right way to yeah. – there's no right process. Yeah, uh, I would. I write books too, and I. It's one of the things I. I don't have any talent for. Okay, well, <laughs> so I disagree I, with that. I quite liked your books. Well, I have a lot of technique, actually. Okay, all right. In a sense, my original writing looked like translations from German. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate that uh, that that it came out all right. Yeah. Um, but the way I work is when I'm doing a book. I first I outline the book and not in a general outline. You know, here's here's I start with here's what I want the reader walking away, either having experience knowing or, you know, what will the impact be on the reader? Then and I'm pretty clear about that. Then I kind of write down chapters, you know, so I make up maybe 10, 15, 20 chapters with little headlines in which I each know what the, what's going to be in the chapter. Then I begin to, to write. I write early in the morning. At first, I can only write like an hour or so. Um, after the second week, I can begin to write a couple of hours. Into, into the process, I can write three, four, five, six hours if I need to. Yeah. Without, you know, so I'm building up stamina for the book. I'm also getting the voice of the book. Um, when I'm writing it, Steve, I, I don't judge it while I'm writing it in the sense of I'm just getting it out. Mm. spitting it out as it were the first thing i do the next day is i edit what i've written because then i have some distance from it it warms me up for the writing that day if you see what i mean and um so then i'm it's like priming the pump so i'm all all set for the for what i'm going to do next um and that's one part that's like my creative process for writing books is so different than my creative process for writing music when I write music, I just sit down and I write it. 
I, it's not hard for me. I, I, I have a natural ability to do that. Plus, I know how to do it. Right. And um, same, same with scripts. Uh, you know, somehow I'm able to write scripts uh, fairly easily. So, you know, some, some things I, where, where I don't have the natural talent, I have to really work at it. And other things, it's not that I don't work at it. It just becomes more, it becomes more second nature. Yeah. But there's always that discipline, you know. Like yeah. a lot of times when I'm writing a book, I will not write music. Yeah, I, I don't know if this makes important. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but what for me what I've done, especially since I have um, limited time frames for most things I do, I try to work out a process that will help me get the outcome I want in a, with a, a kind of an economy of means. Now, there are other people who can't do it that way. They have to, you know, and I respect their processes, if, and particularly if they come out with great results. I, I think, though, just mechanically, next time you, you sit down to write, yeah. don't be thinking about whether it's good or bad. Yeah, it's a discipline. Sure. It, it really is, because when you think about whether it's good or bad, you're thinking about how it reflects on you, mm. your identity. You're making it about you yeah. versus it. You know, Robert, one of the most profound things I found in your book was um, there was a section in here, and I've, I've probably read it many times, even like it, I do creative writing workshops myself, and I, you talk about making things up. And I found that was almost like revolutionary when I read that, you know? Mm. Um, you know, the kind of all creatives yeah. just make it up. Yeah. It, it sounds very simple, but it's almost like a revolutionary idea to me. It, it's, um, I, well, I don't know if it's revolutionary in one sense, but it's revolutionary in terms of common practice and how we're educated. You, you know, your teacher doesn't say, well, just make it up. You know, they'll, they'll give you, uh, you know, go research or describe it from your life. Or, you know, there'll be some ways that the reference points won't be inventive. Yeah, I think you say in the book something. When, when creators are interviewed by the media, they're almost always asked to tell how they got the idea for their creation. Often after a few attempts to explain, they made it up which leaves the interviewer dissatisfied. They make up a story of how they did it. They kind of go back and try and justify it. It's know. true. Yeah. So true. Is that common, do you think? Is that a common thing? Yeah, because you really want to answer the question and be invited back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's not much discussion. I just made it up, I suppose. Yeah, well, I just kind of made it up. And, <laughs> <laughs> and do you do yourself in your creative process just, just kind of make things up and, and just see where it goes? I mean, what happens with you, Rob, well, Robert, with that? Well, well, I, hard, I hardly ever make something up and see where it goes because I'm all, almost always have some notion of where I want it to go to okay. begin with. Um, and it doesn't have to, it could be a vague notion, but I have to have that notion. It's got to be clear enough that I would, I can organize around it. Um, Is that important for every creative, do you think? You know, like somebody like Tolkien, the writer, he just kind of followed the story. He didn't know where it was going. Yeah, but he's already, he knew how to write books. So he knew um, how to write books. Yeah, he did. No, I actually in one of my films. It's so interesting. I have I have a film where there's this girl who is being um, pu pu pulled in two different directions. One by her therapist, and another by her writing teacher. And her and she comes in with an assignment, and, she, and her writing teacher says, "Where are you going with this?" And she says, "Well, I'm just kind of you know working organically." And, and the teacher says, oh, like one thing leads to another. And she says, yes. And, he's, and she says, you can get in a lot of trouble that way. Huh. How? Well, what will happen, she said, is you'll lose your way. And it'll, you'll get tighter and tighter. And it'll be harder and harder for you to write. 
And she said, but what about those people who write books that way? And she, and the teacher says, well, they know how to write books. How many books have you written? Uh. She says, none. And, and then she comes in with her lesson. She says, if you structure it right, you can be freer and freer. But if you don't structure, you get tighter and tighter like you do. Yeah. So, I mean, it's good to have a place to go and have a sense of direction. And, uh, you know, because I don't have talent as a, <laughs> for, you know, as a writer, yeah. I had to learn a lot. And um, in a way, some of the things I learned was to really have a place to go. Um, Hemingway, I learned that from Hemingway, among other people, because he would stop writing the day uh, during the day when he had the next place to go. So then he'd stop and he, you know, could have it percolate all night. And then he'd come in in the next day and, and know exactly where he was going. Because that, that creates energy, creates structural tension. Structural tension in the sense of we've got desired state in relationship to the actual state. I want to be here. I am here. And it, it generates energy to move from where you are to where you want to be. I mean, I use, that, I use that principle in my own writing. Uh, I, I couldn't just free write. I have to know where it's going. Totally with you there, Robert. I've been in the kind of personal development and spiritual world, and I've heard a lot of teachers talking about the power of now and being in the now, you know, the, the whole mindfulness about now. Yeah. And then there's the other side, which is more NLP-based, which is more, you know, you've got to know where you're going, what sense of direction. And I guess your book is talking about that, know where you're going. Is there a kind of balance between the two? You know, you know I know it's, you talk about actually, reality. Yes, it is. Sorry, um, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. I wrote a really, I think, pretty good blog called The Zen, the, uh, Zen of Creating, and it, or The Yin and Yang of Creating. And it is really a simultaneous um, gesture of both knowing where you're going and knowing where you are as a single gesture. A single and gesture. both are important. You know, yes, you have to be in the moment. But look, you know, if you're in the moment and have no sense of future, it's hard for you to organize um, d directionality, you know, yeah. create momentum. So I think the people who, I think it's a misunderstanding of Zen, which by the way, I love very much, not the misunderstanding, but the Zen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, Be in the now, but know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's, it's an appreciation of things as they are. Um, and also the aspiration of wanting to bring something into being that doesn't yet exist. Yeah, that's, I suppose that's that balance between being and becoming, isn't it, that you might, spiritual people might talk about in those terms. Who are you being and who are you becoming, perhaps? If, yeah, but that makes it too much about you. Mm. <laughs> All right, okay. And, and, then, and look, here's the thing about the, the creator is separate from the creation. Okay. And in order to really create our lives as if it were a work of art, you need, be, need it, you need to be separate from it so you can be objective about it. And ironically, the more objective about it you are, the more experiential it is. In other words, um, when you're one with something, there's no sense of relationship. When you're two with something, there is a relationship between you and, and it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you look, this, let's take, for example, um, Lady Gaga, which is, of course, not her real name. And it's a character that she's created. Um, and she is separate from it. And by virtue of that, her range and her ability to invent, her ability to understand that she's not what she has created, gives her much more mastery of her own creative process. I never thought of it that way before. But it's really critical. It's really important. You know, right now, I'm co-writing a book called Identity hmm. uh, with uh, Dr. Wayne Anderson, who's a, a, a friend and author here in uh, America. 
And um, the whole point of this book is that people too often have identity issues. And because of that, it puts them in an oscillating pattern. The concept of trying to answer, who am I? What, did, what does it say about me? Um, how do I look? Okay, uh, yeah. Where do I fit in? Um, you know, these, these questions distort the relationship between you as a creator and your creation, because you're not your creation. Now, that's an important point, Robert, isn't it? It is. And the ability to separate, to understand the reality, it's, it's just a reality that you're not your creation. That's really important. I'm glad you said that. That's really resonated. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Oh, really? It's a, it is an important point. It, it's a hard one to get, and it takes practice to get the reality, but it's freeing once you do, because then you, you can make mistakes, you can learn, and you, and you can do all of that without an identity crisis. Because I do think that a lot of artists, um, it's almost like selling their soul when they're hanging their pictures up or showing their films or selling their books because it's almost like they're selling a piece of them, which makes it all the more painful when people don't like it. It's a little different. It's more like selling your children. I'm oh, selling your children. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people and, might uh, like that. You, know? you, could, you could take it personally that you don't like my child. <laughs> Robert, thank you so much for speaking with me and all the best for your work and um, hope to catch up with you soon. Great. Such a pleasure talking to you.